Thanks to this season's presenting sponsor, Kohler. They design innovative sinks and faucets for people who do their best work in the kitchen. In the summer of 1951, a teenager named Brady Keyes boarded a train to Los Angeles. Brady spent the first 14 years of his life in Austin, Texas. Growing up in the South meant his world was confined by rigid color lines. Jim Crow determined where he could live, where his community could worship, get an education, socialize. Even his passion for football was subject to separate but equal. His coaches were impressed by his game, but they knew, and Brady knew, that he wouldn't be able to play for the University of Texas Longhorns because of his race. Maybe California would be different. Brady settled into his seat, set down his bag and a small cardboard shoebox. This cardboard box, which doubled as a lunchbox, was a staple of black travel during the first half of the 20th century. His Aunt Clara had packed it, and inside were pieces of cold fried chicken and fried potatoes, thick-cut ham sandwiches, pound cake, juicy peaches. It would be another 10 years before students across the American South launched a massive sit-in movement to desegregate lunch counters and soda fountains. It would be another 13 years before the passage of the Civil Rights Act. So black travelers consulted the Negro Motorist Green Book to find restaurants, motels, and gas stations that would serve a black family. And they packed shoebox lunches for the long stretches between those stops. Brady stretched his legs and looked out the window, where his beloved Aunt Clara and a few friends stood under a sign marked, Colored. They waved him farewell. Brady recalled decades later that he hummed the tune, California, Here I Come, to himself as he settled into the long journey out of the South. As the train pulled out of the station, Brady Keyes might have had an inkling that he'd make it to the NFL one day, but he probably had no idea how much fried chicken would define his life. Today on Proof, the second episode in our two-part series about fast food franchises. We'll tell the story of Brady Keyes, a football star turned fried chicken franchise mogul. From America's Test Kitchen, I'm Bridget Lancaster, and this is Proof. Hey, Proof listeners. Now, we all know that fried calamari is delicious, but what else can you do with calamari? Today, I'm calling one of my America's Test Kitchen colleagues to find out. Hello? Hey, Dan, it's Bridget. Bridget, what are you doing calling me? <laughs> I have a very specific question for you, and I can't think of a better person to ask, but, okay, this is going to sound strange, but what is your favorite way to make and prepare calamari? So I love calamari and the fact that you can cook it really briefly and it's nice and tender, mm -hmm. or you can cook it for a long time and it gets supple and, and super, super tender. So I love a stuffed and braised calamari. Oh, yeah. You know, obviously I love fried calamari, but one of my other favorites is doing it in a risotto. The texture is just incredible. So it's nice tender bites that kind of contrast nicely with the rice. 
Calamari can be so much more than deep fried rings. For our recipe for seafood risotto, and to learn where you can buy Town Doc Calamari, visit towndoc.com slash ATK. Writer and historian Marcia Chatlin brings us this story. That 14-year-old boy would eventually become Brady Keys, NFL All-Pro defensive back for the Pittsburgh Steelers. But when you hear about Brady Keys, you might hear his name in the same sentence as another we're very familiar with, Kentucky Fried Chicken. Brady Keys played in the NFL from 1961 through 1968, And when he started, Black athletes made up only 12% of all players in the league. And salaries weren't what they are today. Brady's salary was about $30,000 to $40,000 per year. Now, in today's money, that's about $250,000. That is good money, but it's not really enough to sustain an athlete for the rest of their post-retirement life. So this motivated Brady to plan for his post-football life even while he was still playing football. All they wanted you to do was do what they said and play football. This is Rodney Keyes, Brady's son. Keep your mouth shut, play football, get paid. Well, he wanted to be in business. He dabbled in real estate, tried his hand in car detailing. He even worked at an aircraft manufacturer. But at each turn, he was shut out because he was a Black man and these industries were slow to change. But he had another idea. Fried chicken. In the 1960s, innovations in chicken farming and new technology and deep-fat fryers meant fried chicken could become an accessible, anytime kind of meal. He figured... A fried chicken restaurant could be big business. So between huddles, before scrimmages, after memorizing the next week's plays, Brady was thinking about cooking oil, homemade pickles, and the price of pie slices. The Steelers, the NFL, was like, what are you doing? We just play football here. Brady wasn't easily deterred. His first love was football, But when he realized that it didn't provide the best route to financial freedom, he was willing to explore his options, even if they were limited. So, in 1967, Brady Keyes had just played in the Pro Bowl. He gathered his family together after the game, and he said, here, try my fried chicken. And he said, I'm going to open this restaurant. What do y'all think? People said, it's pretty good. He said, you know, I'm going to make this dream come true and open a restaurant. Brady had saved some money and borrowed $5,000 from a friend on the Steelers to establish his first brick and mortar in San Diego. He called it, fittingly, All Pro Chicken. It opened in January of 1967, and it did really well. So he immediately set his sights on expansion, and he knew franchising would be the key to securing his legacy. Because in the 1960s, fast food franchising was the new frontier of the American dream. In 1945, there were 3,500 fast food outlets in the United States. By 1975, there were 44,000. In case you aren't familiar, here's a little franchising 101. Franchises are businesses that are established by a parent company with individual locations operated by business people called franchisees. 
The structure is different from other kinds of business ownership we're familiar with. There's a central owner, the franchisor, who develops the brand, the recipes, the design, and basically puts together an operation guide. Then the franchisor sells the concept to the franchisee. Franchisees rent their locations from the franchisor. Franchisees manage the day-to-day, deal with the problems on the ground, pay into advertising funds, and they hire and fire workers. I like to say it's like a family where the parents set all the rules, but the kids earn all the money. But when a franchise is just getting off the ground, there's a bit of heavy lifting for the parents. Right. So Brady wanted to expand. That meant finding more locations, enhancing marketing and advertising. He crunched the numbers and realized he was going to need half a million dollars to get all pro franchises off the ground. And that presented Brady with a problem. Because the banking industry was fraught with racial discrimination, even for a celebrity like Brady Keys. So... You know, banks might be reluctant to lend to African-American entrepreneurs because they think that Black borrowers are more, quote-unquote, risky. And such assessments, of course, are informed by racial stereotypes. This is Chin Jo. She wrote a book called Supersizing Urban America. She interviewed Brady back in 2011, and she says that some of the barriers Brady confronted are still with us today. When banks do lend to African-American borrowers, the loans tend to be smaller than for whites. And if African-American entrepreneurs approach Black-owned banks, those banks are more likely to be undercapitalized. One of the reasons why Black business owners may have had a harder time getting business loans is because banks make loan decisions based on the personal capital an applicant has. Maybe they'll leverage their home to secure a loan. And there was, and still is, a large discrepancy in personal wealth between Black and white business owners. But there can also be racial discrimination apart from this. A report from the Federal Reserve as recent as 2002 found that even after controlling for private wealth, Black business owners still faced higher loan denial rates than their white counterparts. Going to the bank like you and I are able to do today, uh, he was laughed out of everyone that he went to. As Brady is trying to hustle to get money for All Pro, his contract with the Steelers is coming to a close. And I get the impression Brady was ready to retire at that point. But this financing issue would ultimately be the reason he kept playing. So he joined the Minnesota Vikings in the fall of 1967 and spent all of his free time trying to get the financing that All Pro needed to survive. He had gotten so many bank doors closed in his face that he had to talk to someone that he knew. So he approaches Art Rooney. Mr. Rooney was willing to give him the seed money to start this thing called the Keys Group. Arthur Joseph Rooney. He was the owner of the Pittsburgh Steelers. He's often pictured with a big cigar hanging out of his mouth. He was famous for helping diversify NFL coaching, by creating a rule that's still in place today, that the NFL must interview a diverse slate of candidates. And he wanted to invest in Brady Key's all-pro chicken franchise. So Brady started leveraging these powerful connections, building up the financing he'd need to take all-pro to the next level. He signed on to another season in the NFL in 1968 with the St. Louis Cardinals, with plans to retire and focus entirely on fried chicken. 
When Brady talked about All Pro in its early stages, he emphasized that his brand was special, not because he was an athlete, but because All Pro was among a few Black-owned fast food franchise concepts. Now, the major fast food brands hadn't yet made a splash in Black neighborhoods. McDonald's and other fast food brands that were founded before 1970 thought of themselves as catering to the suburbs. Ray Kroc, the famous head of McDonald's, even called the suburbs the place where McDonald's grew up. But things would change very fast. Some very sad news for all of you, and I think uh, sad news for all of our fellow citizens and people who love peace all over the world. And that is that Martin Luther King was shot and was killed tonight. On April 4th, 1968, the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated in Memphis. Two months later, presidential hopeful Robert Kennedy was assassinated in Los Angeles. That year, racial tensions in the United States would boil over, setting off a chain of events that Brady Keyes would not expect, leading to millions of dollars in investment in his business from an unlikely source, the White House. After King's assassination, there were major uprisings in predominantly African-American communities throughout the entire country. A lot of the uprisings, they were prompted by incidents of police brutality, but the consensus was they were also informed by chronic unemployment, poor housing, uh, failing schools. Two things became clear. One, there was a handful of white franchisees in neighborhoods experiencing white flight. And after their neighborhoods went from being mostly white to predominantly black, they didn't always want to stay in these communities. And two, community members really wanted to see Black-owned businesses in their neighborhoods. So fast food needed to change, and big franchises soon discovered that they could make big bucks by advertising and catering to Black customers and recruiting Black franchise owners. And in response, a new set of policies were drafted, offices opened, and bureaucrats recruited to manage the programs that would attempt to address what people called the urban crisis the unrest that was televised on the nightly news. Then-presidential candidate Richard Nixon offered this response. What we need are not more millions on welfare rolls, but more millions on payrolls in the United States of America. Instead of government jobs and government housing and government welfare, let government use its tax and credit policies to enlist in this battle the greatest engine of progress ever developed in the history of man, American private enterprise. And let us build bridges, my friends. Build bridges to human dignity across that gulf that separates black America from white America. Even though he was a small government guy, President Nixon was willing to spend lots of federal dollars on business development, especially in black communities. The idea was the path to civil rights can be paved with profits. And even though racism was still rampant in housing and education and the justice system, some people figured that Black business could create a pathway for Black people to improve the quality of everyday life economically. And this change could fuel the fight to secure civil rights. This idea is called Black capitalism. It takes root in the Nixon administration and becomes kind of an ethos around our culture around 
elevating the black middle class. And it intimately connects these ideas of economics with political partisanship and outreach to black communities. That's Leah Wright Regeer. She's a professor at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government, and she wrote a book called The Loneliness of the Black Republican, Pragmatic Politics and the Pursuit of Power. You've probably seen her talking politics on cable news. So what Nixon would often do is take these capitalistic ideas about infusing money or cash into Black communities or into Black entrepreneurs' pockets. And in turn, Black entrepreneurs would use this money to open fast food franchises, car dealerships, or liquor stores. Meanwhile, Brady Keyes was living in Pittsburgh post-retirement, where he'd open a couple All-Pros and was still running the original All-Pro in San Diego. And he was actively dealing with the realities of running a business in communities that had been hollowed out in uprisings, where business development was rare and jobs were scarce. And he realized that if he could run a business in inner-city communities during a time when people needed so much, then the struggle to start All-Pro would have been well worth it. And so Brady Keyes found himself, like he did throughout his life, making the most of the moment. President Nixon needed to win. And winning meant the Black vote, primarily in Cleveland. If you win Ohio, you win the White House. So Brady gets a letter from Washington, D.C. My mom gave me the letter the other day where they're saying, Brady Keys, we want you to come to Washington and testify at the White House. We're going to start this small business program and we want your input. Brady would eventually meet with Maurice Stans, Nixon's Secretary of Commerce, before he was embroiled in the Watergate scandal. And the meeting would lead to Brady's special friendship with Nixon's Office of Minority Business Enterprise. Which then was able to provide grant and loan monies for my dad to build out Cleveland, Ohio, so that Richard Nixon could say, look what I'm doing for Black folks. So Brady, all of a sudden having left professional sports, was now among the most powerful politicians in the nation. And he saw yet another opportunity. You know, Keyes, he kind of, he was quite savvy. He knew that the Nixon administration was invested in his own success so that they- Brady knew that Nixon needed him, and Brady needed access to loans. At one point, he got $5 million from the Office of Minority Enterprise, and shortly after that, he got offered a seat at the table. Nixon appointed him to what was called an advisory council on minority business enterprise. It's important to note here that Nixon was no friend of civil rights. He undermined fair housing laws, spoke out against school busing, and spied on Black activists. And at the same time, Nixon was promoting all pro and cultivating friendships with other Black celebrities, like football player Jim Brown and singer James Brown. So by his own account... Between 1963 and 1973, Keyes received $9 million in loans from the EDA. White House officials would use this as evidence that they were helping Black communities. And it wasn't just, you know, White House officials putting out pamphlets and things like that, what we might call propaganda. But they're also putting advertisements in Black newspapers, Black periodicals like Ebony and Jet. And in fact, you know, their Black capitalism initiative 
is actually one of the more popular advertisements that we see proliferate in Black magazines during the period. A photograph of Brady standing with a bucket of all-pro chicken in front of a Cleveland store appeared on the cover of a 1972 Department of Commerce report on economic development with the headline, Inner City Jobs to Serve the Inner Man. Brady understood who Nixon was, but he was focused on what he believed his chain could do for everyday people, not the president. Black capitalism is messy. And so was your dad a Republican? No, independent. His focus was doing what it was that he wanted, which was growing this brand. And if that was beneficial to President Nixon, then that was beneficial to President Nixon. But what my dad wanted to do was open stores and hire Black people, make them the manager, and let them go on and be successful. And this is why things get complicated. On the one hand, Nixonian Black capitalism seemed like a too small effort at reckoning with a very big problem. Like, how can all this be solved with business? The way that he imagined Black capitalism did not require the government to invest much in African-American communities, and it certainly didn't require a real reckoning with racial inequality. So, you know, Nixonian Black capitalism, it also didn't seek to integrate African-Americans into the broader U.S. economy and workforce. On the other hand, putting money in the hands of Black entrepreneurs— especially someone like Brady Keyes, would ultimately bring badly needed resources to communities. Capital, jobs, a little bit of hope. I think I want to change the language just a little bit Mm -hmm. to talk about not Black capitalism, because I think that has a particular connotation, very connected to the Nixon administration, and in fact, it comes out of the Nixon administration. And I'd rather reframe it as Black business ownership. This is Nashani Frazier. Her book, Harambee City, The Congress of Racial Equality in Cleveland and the Rise of Black Power Populism, talks a lot about Black-owned businesses and civil rights organizations in the 1960s. She thinks that there's a little more nuance in the question of whether or not a business can make a difference. It was always presumed that Black businesses would support the Black community, not the normal uh, framework of Black capitalism, where you have one individual who obtains a business, makes money, and then he's the only person or she's the only person who is the beneficiary. There was never a time the Black community did not think Black business ownership helped everybody. My dad was always focused on empowering both himself and his people. So while he tried with suburban locations, he found that he struck a chord with Black neighborhoods, Black managers, and him. They could do something. So from Cleveland to Harlem, he was the franchisor. You know, he wasn't anybody's franchisee. He was finding his friends and his fellow athlete peers and saying, let's do this together. And they're all Black men, too. After the break, Brady Keyes meets the Colonel. 
If there's one thing Kohler knows, it's innovative sink design. So that got me wondering, do my colleagues at America's Test Kitchen know how to fill in the blank? Hello? Hey, Caroline, it's Bridget. I need you to finish the sentence for me. Okay. Everything but the... Everything but the... Hmm. Um... Cat dragged in? Old fish in the freezer. The peanut butter. Everything but the kitchen sink. For everything, including the kitchen sink, there's Kohler. Because they know that in the kitchen, the sink is where clean begins. Kohler's Artifacts Touchless Kitchen Faucet has a precision sensor built right into the spout, so a simple wave of your hand turns the faucet on and off in 20 milliseconds. We're all spending more time at home right now, so why not enjoy a more hygienic kitchen? Wash your hands or your produce without ever touching a faucet. Learn more about the Kohler Artifacts Touchless Kitchen Faucet at kohler.com clean. When Miyoko Shinner first became vegan, she started by veganizing every recipe in Julia Child's landmark cookbook, Mastering the Art of French Cooking. And I had to figure out how do I capture those flavors, those rich, unctuous, hearty, deep flavors with the umami bombs, you know, they just last in your mouth forever. And how can I replicate that from plants? And I really made it my life's work to try to do that. Miyoko learned that a good vegan butter needed to function like butter. And the secret to that is that we actually make it like real butter. The cultured vegan butter from Miyoko's Creamery is made using cashew milk and coconut oil, and it's churned just like traditional dairy butter. And it tastes like butter. We're not looking for just pure functionality. We're looking for functionality with something that elevates taste. Learn more at Miyoko's.com. That's M-I-Y-O-K-O-S.com. For 30 years, OXO has made kitchen tools to make everyday better. Karen Schnellwar, OXO's Vice President of Global Brand Strategy and Marketing, talks about how OXO reflected on this milestone. We decided that in addition to making tools and gadgets for the home, we wanted to take a step back and take a broader look at the home that we all share, the planet, and give back. OXO is partnering with 1% for the planet giving 1% of sales back to environmental nonprofits. There is a sense of urgency when it comes to the planet. There's a growing awareness of the impact of our actions on the earth. And in so far as we can help, we want to be part of the solution. To learn more about OXO's partnership with 1% for the planet, visit OXO.com. That's OXO.com. Hi, Proof listeners. I want to tell you about Nova Now, a new bi-weekly podcast from the PBS series Nova that's diving into the science behind the headlines. Join journalist and physician Alok Patel as he talks with the scientists, engineers, technologists, and mathematicians that are working to better understand our world. Now it's more critical than ever to distinguish fact from fiction and find science-based answers to the most pressing questions of our time. So listen to Nova Now today on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Before the break, Brady Keyes secured upwards of $9 million in loans from the federal government to expand his franchise, All Pro Chicken. All Pro was growing fast through the early 1970s, and it would eventually peak to 150 franchise locations across the country. Bright colors, red, yellow, blue, glass. I mean, you know, when he put this vision together, I mean, they spared no expense. Now, I mean, these were 
You know, these weren't shabby-looking joints. The logo was an animated chicken wearing hockey skates with a baseball bat tucked under its wing, wearing a glove catching a baseball. The O in All Pro had a star. There was a menu board behind the cash registers with pictures of all the menu items and, on display, lots and lots of merch. The restaurant was more than just a restaurant. It brought in memorabilia and merchandise based on sports. So we had, of course, T-shirts, hats, patches. We, you could get a baseball, you could get a glove. So, you know, the marketing part of it was something that my dad was always interested in. For a franchise that size, it would be typical for the franchisor to be more hands-off and just send regional managers out to check up on the locations. But that wasn't how Brady Keys operated. We used to drive the stores. We'd leave Pittsburgh at 11 o'clock at night and drive to Cleveland and watch them close at 2 a.m. sitting out in the parking lot. Brady would go inside the restaurant and sit and watch the employees count the money, close up shop. Rodney would be sleeping in the back seat of the car with his brother and his mom. Brady operated this massive franchise like a family business and wanted to ensure that each and every detail was just right. Brady enlisted his sports friends to open their own all-pro chickens, including his former college teammate Waldo Jefferson and Pittsburgh Pirates great Willie Stargell. And these restaurants were very, very much a part of the community. Locals who wanted to buy black would become regulars. We did a lot of huge parades and what we called community unity days. And you could see out in front of our store, uh, you know, a long parade with fireworks and people. For Brady's family, All Pro wasn't just their dad's job. It's the family legacy. They knew their dad was a football star, but they remember him as a wizard in business. All Pro is still a big part of their identity. Rodney's an accomplished attorney and businessman in his own right. But when he speaks about the things Brady Keys accomplished with All Pro, he gets excited about things, like local TV commercials. My dad filmed a commercial with my little brother where Jamie put on a chicken outfit. And at the end of the ad, my dad takes off the head and says, this is my little chicken. So, back in the late 1960s, Brady Key's All-Pros were becoming fully embedded in the communities that they were located in. And he seemed to have this Midas touch with Black consumers. And so, it's no surprise that he caught the attention of some big names in fast food. It's the only way that you're going to get chicken that is finger-licking good. And I'd be mighty proud to have you try Colonel Sanders' Kentucky Fried Chicken. Mighty proud. Kentucky Fried Chicken had been struggling in the Black neighborhoods where they saw Brady Keys flourishing. And so John Y. Brown, the then owner of Kentucky Fried Chicken, approached Brady Keys with a proposition. Partnership in the fried chicken business. Which poses a strange conundrum for Brady Keys because he's always been his own boss. He was the franchisor. He was in charge. The deal from Kentucky Fried Chicken was this co-brand some Kentucky Fried Chicken locations. All Pro could still exist, but Brady would create a new company devoted to Brady Keys Kentucky Fried Chicken. 
It was a mouthful, but it could easily solve the problem of capturing those black dollars. Brady Keys took the deal. His son told me that being hands-on the way he was, overseeing over 150 locations, was a lot to manage. He decided to slowly dissolve All Pro Chicken and agreed to put his energy into Brady Keys Kentucky Fried Chicken. They didn't want a competitor. They wanted somebody to be in a joint venture with them. So, you know, when you're a joint venture, you got two co-equals and they come together to make a profit. So, again, he's in control of what he's doing, so much so that instead of the colonel's face on our restaurants, it was my dad's black face. Wait, what? Brady Key's Kentucky Fried Chicken had his black face on the marquee. No way. Yes! (laughs) A Brady Key's Kentucky Fried Chicken greeted customers with a drawing of Brady's face and signature, and a sign that read, Colonel Sanders' recipe, Kentucky Fried Chicken, Finger Lickin' Good, and All Pro Enterprise. And inside, you could also get some merchandise that reminded you that you were supporting a Black-owned business. This approach worked. Brady Keys helped to open a door for Kentucky Fried Chicken to gain a foothold in Black America. And he remained a part of developing new ideas and trying new things out. And Kentucky Fried Chicken welcomed it. He tested concepts like in-store buffets and making chicken soup out of leftover chicken inventory. The colonel became a friend to the Keys family. I mean that literally. Harlan Sanders, as in the Colonel Sanders, visited the Keys family. The colonel came to our stores in Detroit, and uh, we met him over at the store where we implemented the buffet. So the Colonel's limo was parked out in front of my house when I was in high school. And I was able to tell all my friends, I got the Colonel in the house and we took pictures. It wasn't just Kentucky Fried Chicken. In Detroit, there were Burger King restaurants that had been damaged in riots in 1967 and 1968. And my dad went fishing with uh, Macklemore, the president of Burger King. And they made a deal. My dad said, let me take over these stores. You can't do nothing with them. I'm black. I can deal with those people in Detroit. And off we went. In a 1974 interview with Black Enterprise Magazine, he mentioned that the neighborhoods where his restaurants were located had high rates of crime, that fast food franchisors knew this, and that they intentionally sought out African-American franchisees to deal with the challenges of doing businesses in these neighborhoods. These opportunities could be a double-edged sword. A lot of times, Black franchisees were offered stores that needed a lot of attention and care. And at the same time, they struggled to get the financial support from franchisors after they inked their franchise deals. These disparities were a common part of the Black business experience, even for Brady. Rodney calls this the Black tax. There was... And there is a black tax. You know, if your food cost in a white neighborhood is 30%, count on it being 36% because of the black tax. You're charged more. You can't buy in volume like other people. You have generally older facilities. You have sometimes employees that, you know, take a little bit more in terms of training. 
So there was a black tax that made operating in these inner city areas tough. But Rodney thinks these additional pressures taught Brady to be an even stronger businessman. He was always able to hire the people and to manage them so that they would be successful with this unique consumer. Brady Keyes is often credited, and I have no way to confirm this, but he's often credited for coming up with Burger King's slogan, have it your way. People were coming into Detroit saying, you know, I don't want my Whopper like that. I want no cheese. I want a bun, no meat. I want a meat, no bun. My dad said, I'm going to give these people what they want. And that led to have it your way. May I help you, sir? If I wanted a Whopper and I asked you to hold the pickles and hold the lettuce, I know I'd get that fast. But what I get to hear you sing? Why in the world didn't my dad trademark have it your way? He just came up with it to save his business. Brady did all sorts of creative things with his locations. Really, whether or not Burger King and Kentucky Fried Chicken liked it. We had boxing in the parking lot of our Livernois Burger King. I mean, you know, of course, no other franchisees was having boxing matches in their parking lots for the liability aspect of it. You know, they liked the fact that we were innovating, but we would always do stuff that would, you know, would get on their nerves. And so Brady Keyes realized that he had power in his partnerships with these giant franchises, KFC and Burger King, and he began to leverage that power. One of his first demands was to make sure that they were running ads in Black publications and on Black-owned radio stations so that his customers felt valued. When we started, there was no advertising, Black advertising agencies. Some companies were starting to launch what was called ethnic marketing campaigns, which meant designing respectful and culturally sensitive advertising for a racially segmented group of consumers. But this was very much still taking shape in the food business. Once you advertise to my consumers, then they come into the restaurant and they see people that look like them, and that breeds loyalty. Dad's insistence that his advertising co-op money that he's paying in to KFC and Burger King, if they don't spend that with some Black advertising agencies, he was going to stop paying it. Eventually, Burger King followed his lead. The company hired Uniworld, a Black-owned ad agency, which later became one of the most successful advertising agencies in the world. When Chin Joe interviewed Brady, he talked more about what his restaurants did rather than what they earned. He really liked to emphasize um, giving back to the communities where his restaurants were. So either starting community youth programs, especially those promoting sports or education, giving out scholarships. This is why conversations about Black capitalism and Black business are so nuanced. Businesses usually are so committed to the bottom line that they rarely usher in social change. But the history of Black business reveals something else. We take for granted that there are um, a lot of fast food outlets in African-American neighborhoods today. 
but back when he started, he was a, a real trailblazer. Brady Key's all-pro enterprises seemed unstoppable during its expansion. And then the 1973 oil embargo struck the United States. Eleven Arab countries cut off all oil shipments to the United States. We are heading toward the most acute shortages of energy since World War II. Conflict in the Middle East in the late 1960s triggered an oil embargo in the 1970s. The economy took a big hit, and fast food felt it. This turnpike, usually crowded with trucks and automobiles at this time of the year, is practically deserted. The political enthusiasm for using fast food to rebuild Black communities was dampened by the oil shortages of the 1970s, which drove up the cost of doing business everywhere and spurred stagflation. Inflation, high unemployment, and slowed economic growth. With long lines at the pump, suburbanites thought twice about using precious gas to take their families to the drive-thru. Plus, a two-year recession between 73 and 75 hit businesses hard, especially in the places where Brady Keyes' restaurants stood. Black capitalism only works when the economy is also working. One wrench in the system, and the limits and frailties are exposed. Brady was hanging in there the best he could by exploring other restaurant ideas and finding new streams of revenue. But Kentucky Fried Chicken became a little stricter about sharing the spotlight, and they demanded that his franchise agreement fall in line with more traditional ones. In the end, Brady acquired the rights to 12 Kentucky Fried Chicken restaurants in Detroit, and he was also able to maintain his Burger King stores in Detroit. By the late 1970s, All Pro was a relic of Nixon's Black capitalism. But Brady continued to be known as a trailblazer in franchising and Black business ownership. Key's enterprises often appeared on the list of the most impactful Black businesses. Impactful is a good word to describe it. Because regardless of how many locations Brady built, or all the important people he went fishing with or visited in the White House— Brady's franchises were impactful for the communities they were in. We've got, you know, a litany of employees who took their first job with us and became doctors, lawyers, congressmen, everything. That meant the world. And it still does. That's why we try to continue to tell the story, because, you know, you don't have to go to another community. You can do it right in your own community. The fast food industry was able to survive the struggles of the 1970s, and they continued to recruit minority franchisees with assistance from small business administration programs like the ones Nixon started. Even though the term black capitalism isn't used as often today, the idea that business has a place in equalizing opportunity remains, and the limits of that strategy continue to reveal themselves. Eventually, Brady Keyes decided to shift gears. He sold his Burger King restaurants in 1991 back to the company and decided to end his relationship with KFC in 2003. He had accomplished what he had set out to do when he shared his chicken recipe with his family after the 1967 Pro Bowl game. Proof that a Black person in America who had confronted segregation and discrimination could open a business and make a difference. Considering where his journey started in Austin and where he was 67 years later, 
Brady felt a sense of pride when he walked away from fast food. He wasn't done in business, though. Among his many interests, he invested in a Black-owned radio station and opened some airport gift shops. Brady Keyes passed away in 2017. Tough, hard, loyal, and smart. He wouldn't have done so well if he was not so loyal, tough, hardworking, and smart. And he was a great dad and a super grandpa and uh, all-around good guy. I mean, a lot of what I'm able to do now is based on the fact that he treated people right and was honest and loyal and had great integrity. And that, I'm just riding on vapors right now. Today, we know that fast food is a complicated presence in communities of color. But Brady Keyes' story helps us understand that these drive throughs symbolized something deeper back then. A chance to invest in a community that had been long ignored. And it was hard. Harder than it should have been. And it's still hard for Black business owners today. There's still massive inequity and discriminatory lending practices. But Rodney Keyes hopes that sharing his dad's story, the all-pro story, will help inspire a new generation of business people. And who knows? Maybe one day All Pro Chicken will be back. So one of these days, we're going to come up with another restaurant. We have the recipe and we have designs on bringing back All Pro Fried Chicken with a 2000s flair. Thanks to Marsha Chatlin for reporting this story. Thanks to everyone that we spoke to for this episode. If you want to learn more about this story, you can visit our website. That's americastestkitchen.com slash proof. Go check it out. And if you like proof, then be sure to subscribe wherever you listen so you'll get new episodes as soon as they drop. And while you're there, why not leave us a rating or write us a review? It really helps other people find the show. Proof is hosted and produced by me, Bridget Lancaster. Our executive producer is Caitlin Kelleher. Sarah Joyner is our managing producer, associate producer Caroline Rickert. Scoring sound design and mixing by Matt Boynton of Ultraviolet Audio. Brian Campbell of Signal Sounds composed our theme music. Additional music by Kyle Forrester and Jordan Pearson. Post-production supervisor is Hen Margolis. Our production manager is Diane Knox. Fact-checking by Kaya Williams. Research support from Emily Norway. Jack Bishop is chief creative officer of America's Test Kitchen. David Nussbaum is our CEO. Thanks again to our sponsors, Kohler, Oxo, Miyoko's Creamery, and The Town Doc. Proof is a production of America's Test Kitchen. Hi, Proof listeners. I'm El Simone Scott, and I'm here to tell you about my new podcast from America's Test Kitchen. It's called The Walk-In, as in the walk-in refrigerator in a restaurant. And if you've ever worked in a restaurant, then like me, you've probably had some of your best cries in the walk-in. It's a safe space, a place to catch your breath or let it all out. And that's exactly what we'll do on my show. We'll hold space for the food world to get real about the tough stuff in this industry. The show features raw, unfiltered conversations with chefs, writers, and visionaries changing the food game. 
like my conversation with Mashama Bailey about what it's like to run a fine dining restaurant in a building that used to be a segregated bus station, or my conversation with Omar Tate about how he expresses the Black experience on a plate. I hope you'll check it out. Subscribe to The Walk-In today, anywhere you get your podcasts.